Previously on Storyological. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't lean on the microphone stand. It's gonna make a real wobble in your audio form. Do you know what my favorite kind of whimsy is? Sexual whimsy. Oh, that's a good one. I'm gonna go ruthless, ruthless whimsy. Yeah, for, I mean, for all we know, there has never been a more historically accurate musical than Alexander Hamilton, the musical. Which, by the way, Apart I don't from even. Craziest girlfriend. I think uh, fact for fact, they, they go pretty strong. Do you? <laughs> One of the things I truly adored about Crazy Ex-Girlfriend is how every time it built up a desire or a way of seeing the world in, in Rebecca's eyes or in the eyes of one of her friends, then they just totally take it down, dismantle it with a song. I'm thinking about good vibrations. She's telling me good that's the beginning of this episode <laughs> this is storyological a podcast about amazing stories that we kind of like i'm chris Camerud, and i'm eg kosh my pick my <laughs> in a world in a world <laughs> Where two people talk about stories every other week. Chris Camrude picks for February 25th. Not the day you will hear this episode. We've gone British. My pick for this week, Dance Card by Roberto Bellano. Uh, who you might know from novels that he wrote previously in his alive time mm-hmm. called uh, 2666, 2666, also it is known as. Uh, the Savage Detectives, he seemed to become really big during the time I was in my MFA. So I could be biased. It could be I was in my MFA and people were talking about books and all of a sudden Roberto right, Bologna... Maybe he's timeless. Maybe he's an evergreen Chilean Maybe, writer. but like Clarice uh, Lispector. Lispector? I'm going with Lispector, but... Can we just call her Inspector Clarice? <laughs> like like Clarice, yeah. Roberto uh, is somebody that has come to the US, come to the English-speaking world in translation. And I think there's much more of a happening for a lot of writers in that situation because suddenly the literary world or the book world it's like oh my god we've discovered this person and all of these books <laughs> exactly. come out over the next Look at all this seven other content years. that's out there across the universe this is a story called dance card as previously mentioned that i found because uh jenny zong of sour heart fame along with all of the other good stuff she's written i i saw her writing about this story uh, and I thought, oh, I'll go read that story before I read what Ginny wrote, of course, much as I assume many of you go read the story before you listen to us. And I went and read the story, and it's pretty good. So I will, as, as previously has happened on Storylogical, I will read the beginning of this story. Number one, my mother read Neruda to us in a place in Chile that I can't pronounce, and Los Angeles. Number two. A single book called in English, 20 Love Poems and a Song of Despair. Editorial Lasada, Buenos Aires, 1961. On that title page, a drawing of Neruda and a note explaining that this edition commemorated the printing of the millionth copy. Had a million copies of Vente Poemas already been printed in 1961? Or did the note refer to all of Neruda's published works? The first, I fear, although both possibilities are disturbing and unimaginable now. Number three. My mother's name is written on the second page of the book, Maria Victoria Avalos Flores. A somewhat hasty examination of the handwriting leads me to the improbable conclusion that someone else wrote her name there. It is not my father's handwriting, nor that of anyone I know. Whose is it, then? After closely scrutinizing the signature blurred by the years, I am obliged to admit, albeit skeptically, 
that it is my mother's. Uh, so that's beginning. So, you know, we begin very sweet scene, mother reading to child. In this case, uh, the poet Neruda, uh, one of the more famous Chilean poets, later became a politician, later died, as many people do. And I love how there is the experience right in the beginning of him seeing his mother's name and not recognizing it as her name. And there's a kind of sense of loss. He says, oh, it is my mother's. And it was from a time when she is younger than I am now, when she was young and full of life. And I love that the book that she's reading seems to be the only book that she reads to them. <laughs> Does she believe it's the only book worth reading? We don't know. It's a mystery. The story is called Dance Card, and it's a good name because what follows... Uh, sorry, I should define what a dance card is, maybe. Uh, a dance card, if you don't know, is this old-fashioned thing. I don't. I assume Emma did not have one of these in her boarding school. No, but my mum did, and she told me sad stories of attending dances with her sister, uh, sisters and sitting at the edge of the room and wondering if any boy would ever come and ask for a particular dance. And if a boy did, mm. then they would, mar- he, they would make a mark or write his name against that particular tune that would be played sooner. There'd oh. be a polka or a waltz or a, you know. Here Bellano is writing in the form of a kind of list, a series of prospective intellectual partners, of filmmakers and poets and novelists and individuals and ideas with which the narrator encountered, who they wrestled. Like number eight, he starts talking about Alejandro Jodorowsky. Number 11, he talks about his father. Uh, number 30-something, he starts talking about a story of a woman from a revolutionary moment uh, who is tortured by having rats placed sometimes into her vagina. Uh, later, she died of sadness. And the accumulated effect of all of this being that for me, it was like looking at someone's sky and seeing among the stars all of these constellations of archetypes of old heroes and monsters and stories and, and the narrator trying to find themselves, how they belong in it all and what to believe. And also a sense of how many stars are lost uh, among all the constellations that we have been trained to see. All of the shapes, all of the things that are there that we don't see anymore. Like his mom just reading to him from this one book. Yeah. Uh, When I first picked this story up, I was kind of perplexed by it. Because my knowledge of South American literature, poetry, writing, politicians is i'm afraid it turns out to be almost zero so every time a name was mentioned i was like oh oh who's that i have to go off and look that person up and find out who they are and so the first time i read it through was not so much being able to take it in as a story i just felt a little bit ignorant because i didn't know who any of these people were and so it was difficult for me to construct it into a narrative i kept interrupting myself to go and find out who all of these people were which was totally fascinating but it meant that it wasn't until the second time through that i was able to kind of make sense of it as a piece of itself one of the things that struck me was the amount of regret that's inside it the kind of the sense that he fails or abandons every man he studies with or every person he reads. You know, he even abandons Neruda, uh, the person who his mother introduced him to. And until we come back around to Neruda at the end, and then Neruda abandons him, uh, you know, from his dreams. And it just seemed like he he's done a very clever thing to talk about all of these people in such a such a way that we are both that we both understand their greatness and understand why 
why they captured him for a time, but we also understand the kind of depth of his regret, either not having stayed with them or at them having died, and all of the different ways in which the poets and artists have died in war, through AIDS, through the falling of uh, government, uh, through him abandoning them. And I really, yeah, I was very moved by that sense of loss and regret. Yeah, when I finished the, the story, I think the second time, I started thinking about how it was a story of war and poverty and family and identity and home and all of this while hardly being a story at all mm. while also being full of more stories than most stories ever bother trying to to contain mm-hmm. i think last time you talked about leone ross's story uh the woman who lived in the restaurant and he talked about how in love with the structure you were and we kind of we talked about in some ways how focused and how, how clean it was put together and you can look at a story like what bellano written here and and feel like it's a mess. But you know, that regret you're talking about, it's structured just as well as Leone's story, where you talked about how the first paragraph is, says the woman came here to live forever. And so the story ends when forever is over. Mm-hmm. And in this story begins with the mother and the loss of who the, the mom is and thinking about who he doesn't know. And from a certain point of view, everything that happens after the mom is just the adventures, like you said, of all of that loss. And I love how... As he gets to the end and he's talking about how even though he's lost Neruda, Neruda in a way will still stay up there, like at the top of Chilean literature, some kind of dream. All the other poets and artists will live together in jails and asylums. And he, and he hits that last line, our imaginary home, the home we share. And when you were talking about regret, I was like, yeah, that's what that line was to me. It was both a sense of regret and the way when you realize all of the homes that we share are these imagined homes. But also, you know, it contained a little bit of what I understand and think about as a kind of nobility, a kind of noble work of your life spent in these imaginary places with these people that you have imaginary relationships with. And the sense that even though there's there's nothing there, you know, you're all in this sky that in some way is completely disconnected, completely formless. There is a home up there for you. And I love that sense that the story, hit that perfect place I like, where you feel like the story has come home and the narrator has come home. But in some ways, it's a different home and maybe a home that doesn't exist. The, the way that structure you talk about works so well for me is that no matter who our parents are, whether they're present or absent, we always end up living our lives in response to that and who they are, whether we decide to accept the things that they are and bring them into us and live those values or whether we decide to reject them and make other choices. But the thing that we can never do is to escape them so that those ideas become irrelevant and that is you know by locking us into his mom and Neruda in the first paragraph that's what we see that that is the imprint that is his um like ur text and although he tries to reject it again and again and seek out other ideas he is always the life that he describes in here is using poetry and art as its waypoints and that is because he's constantly in discussion with this first text, with this first idea. You know, it made me think of um, Carmen Maria Machado's inventory story, where she looks, the narrator looks back on her life because she's about to die from um, some kind of apocalyptic plague, <laughs> plague. And so she looks back on her life and makes a list of all the people she's had sexual encounters with. And 
you know, for that character, those are the turning points, the waypoints through how she navigates her memories. But for this character, for this narrator, it's all about the art. And I, it's thrilling to understand those different, those different perspectives and the different ways. It opens me up to, I think, understanding that one can see one's own life through different lenses and you don't have to necessarily always look through the same porthole all your life. One of the things that it made me think about was Adam Ehrlich Sachs, whose book, uh, Collection, Inherited Disorders, we talked about some of the stories in the past. Mm-hmm. We did an interview with him. Uh, and his book, you know, really, in a lot of ways, is about the anxiety and ecstasy of influence. Mostly anxiety, but sometimes some ecstasy. Uh, and there's a line in Bolano's story here where he says that, but the fathers must be killed. Poets are born orphans. It's the kind of line you read and then you smile. Like there's a boldness to it and a feeling of a kind of truth in the way that you sense, just like when you fall in love, every great work of art that comes out of you feels like it was born whole and new from you, that there was nothing else there. Like you you become an artist only when you have escaped from the past. But also you're like, oh, you mean... I know that's what you want, but you know the whole story is about wrestling with that idea. Wrestling being just another kind of dancing, just with music, and generally nobody wins in dancing, or everybody wins, I'm not sure. It's, it's really less of a competition. I love the story trick he does, which is he's going to jump around so much in this story. He's going to cover so many things, but he situates us so quickly after the episode about his mom and his first encounter with his first sense of a master giving detail to that before jumping around in time. There's such a thrilling mix of boldness and equivocation in this story. There's nothing bland and in between. He's either coming out with these declarations like, 32, my great-grandparents, the Floris and the Granyas, vainly attempted to tame the wilds of Araucania, where they couldn't even tame themselves. So they were probably Nerudian in their excess. (laughs) <laughs> and that made me think of the Clarice Lyspector story, right? You know, where she's declaring things that are and are not Sveglian. And he's declaring things to be that are and are not Nerudian. You know, this is his his lens and his his passion. It's it's ridiculous and kind of joyful as well. There's a bit where he describes Jodorowsky um talking about all of his favorite artists and he says there's a childlike pride there that he comes to recognize in all artists and if you don't know it when you read that by the time you get later in the story you realize Bolano or the narrator is talking about himself as well right right this pride he has of a roster of people he has Mm -hmm. danced with in his life yeah yeah and uh, those those bits of adverbial naming you know Nerudian and Narian or you you say they're ridiculous I love how you know I feel like you know this story it's puncturing it as it happens, that those kind of lines are like the Crazy Ex-Girlfriend musicals we talk about. It's sung so boldly and so often mm-hmm. that it begins to undercut itself even as it celebrates it. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I've got two small thing, other things I want to say about the story. So one is, it's the most enjoyable bibliography I've ever read. And the second one is that I feel like the subtitle should be A Poet is for Life, Not Just for Revolution. My pick this week is A Kiss with Teeth by Max Gladstone, which was published on Tor.com, but which I found in the New Voices of Fantasy, edited by Peter... S. S. Ulysses. Dog 
Beagle. <laughs> Beagle. Beagle. Peter S. Beagle. Uh, would you say, uh-huh. just just to get this out of the way real quick, would you say a kiss with teeth is better than none? <laughs> yeah, that's... I think yes. Okay. Yeah, I would. I'm not sure a kiss with a fist is better than none. I really love that song, but every time I hear it, it really bothers me that it seems to imply that like putting up with domestic really? violence is be- better than no relationship at all. I can't tell if you're being facetious or being like honest and facetious at the same time. The second one. Yeah, okay. I'm like, I don't know that that is really what it says, but since that has arrived in my mind, it's very difficult for me to shed that thought. This is a story about two people who are wrestling. No. This is a story of Vlad. Vlad the vampire and his wife Sarah, who seems to be a vampire hunter. Uh, And it's their struggle to live inside a kind of a cosy suburban life that they've set up for themselves with their son Paul. It could be called Buffy and Angel the Suburban Years. It's like the... It's this mix of the fantastic and the mundane um, that I I really enjoy. These two people at the beginning of the story are really only defined by the things they do not do. Vlad does not hunt and Sarah does not try and kill him. And I really enjoyed this way of introducing characters, right? It's a kind of a very simple outline that you just get the silhouette of this person and and very little detail which made me think of that quote that you uh, shared with me from Guillermo del Toro. When, when you make a monster, you start with the silhouette and you add the details afterward, because otherwise you end up with a collection of details that don't add up to anything. And the thing that I love about how this story works is that he only adds details in the in the sparest possible way. So this is a story from Vlad's perspective. We see we he builds in a lot of details about Vlad. As the story goes through, we we follow Vlad and his growing desire for one of Paul's teachers as she uh, coaches him on how to coach his son. We see how how constrained he lives and how sad it makes him. But for Sarah, we get much less and I think that you know there is definitely space there to do more with her but I kind of just accept because he's painted this such a great silhouette at the start of the story I really just accept that she is who she is and there's there's enough to work with because that outline is made so clearly joyfully through this story they go from being these people who are who are cut off and who are defined by what they're not doing through to a conclusion where, well, they're still not doing that, you know, with a few, with a bit of a near miss in there. But they, the the outlet Vlad has found is in the relationship with his son and how he has learned to express who he is to his son in a way that he never thought possible. And that beautiful scene at the end where they both learn that the other has been disguising themselves it's uh, filled me with this kind of very happy relief. For a long while uh, with this one, I was not entirely sure if in the end I would like it. But then there was the end where there were a series of reversals and reveals Vlad recognizing something of himself. He's stalked the teacher that he was interested in perhaps feasting on. He stalked her to the home, and there is the scene where in watching her go about her sad life 
as Vlad is seeing it. Something about watching it, he can't get himself to do anything. I know, and there is his wife, there's his wife, ready to take him down, the old vampire hunter, ready and demonstrating her care and attentiveness that maybe he had not noticed for a while. And there, yeah, there's the scene where he's throwing the ball with his son, and suddenly he's telling the son to go deeper and deeper and deeper, and he doesn't know what his son's going to reveal. Yeah, all of those things did give me a sense of happy relief, a, a feeling of joy, of release. Mm. That and the when you talked about turns that happen towards the end, I thought that is where this story is so smart. It sets up a question at the beginning, right? Vlad, will Vlad uh, succumb to his increasing desire to um, to bite this teacher? Will he betray his wife? And then it turns so that that is no longer the question. Like she knew what was happening. In fact, she is there watching him through the sights of a rifle to make sure that she will take him down if he does break, that that she does see him. And in fact, the then it turns to focus on this, on the question of the relationship with his son. And I, I think that's so smart structurally when you hear people talk about writing and how, you know, the, the end is in the beginning. It's like, sure, but also then you have to answer the question in a satisfying and unexpected way. And it's like, will Vlad snap? Yeah, yeah, he does. He totally reveals who he is, but he reveals it to his son, which is a joyful result rather than being a result that takes him back to his monstrous side. Right, right. The question of will he betray his wife or his family is really overtaken by how much has he already betrayed them and himself in choosing a life where he is constantly hiding. I know you mentioned one of the things you liked was a mixture of magical and mundane. Uh, for me, there's something I love in a Joss Whedon story, let's say, or in a particular kind of Ray Bradbury story that I thought about when I was reading this. And what I adore about it is it's not uncommon to see vampires or monsters deployed as a certain kind of metaphor. Vampires often deployed you know, these metaphors for the dark and destructive desires we all have to varying degrees and that we all nurture kind of in the, in the bottom of our souls. And we're forever afraid to bring them out into the light. That's, that's how monsters work. They're great. They're built-in metaphors. Right, but, it, but it is uncommon. And it is in those stories I was talking about of Whedon and Bradbury where it feels like it's not that the monsters are deployed in a way that dispenses with all of those metaphors. It's like they are deployed in a way where it accepts the reality of the monsters and brings all of the tropes with them. But it begins to see the monsters as actual living beings in a situation that have all of this baggage of all of these metaphors that have been put on them before. And through the course of the story, the metaphors, just like the questions you were saying, don't exactly get shed, but they get reshaped. So here, those metaphors, those ideas of lust or whatever that often get associated with vampires, here the story turns those metaphors into something new about a husband and wife, about partnerships, about about the the kind of violence that is inherent in love and being, that often the kind of smashing together and the clinging to each other and the kind of often loss of that as time goes on. And there's a moment where Vlad asks how they can be dangerous with each other. You know, that, that's a moment, that's a kind of truth that this metaphor, this monster has gotten at 
that you don't often hear much. And it's what I want in a fantasy story. I want it to embrace a truth that seems scary to people. Right. Uh, the the other place that the the monster metaphor allows us allows this story to go to is about consciousness and levels of consciousness about yourself and your body and your mannerisms and ways of being and when he describes Vlad walking down a corridor in the school in control of every process in a way that a human never can be you know right from sort of homeostasis up and he's conscious of every level of hormonal and biological control right down to remembering to make his shoe squeak on the floor as he walks down the corridor and I loved that because it spoke to me both as a kind of a kind of a reminder of the beauty of mindfulness and having that that awareness and sense of self but also of the pain and the fear of it like when I've had panic attacks in the past one of the overwhelming feelings of that is being too conscious of my own breath and feeling like feeling like it's sort of swelling up in my chest and it's going to like burst out of my throat in an uncontrollable way and that that sense of every in and out feels like it subsumes me and who I am and so I loved how that that conscious control that Vlad has speaks to both the beauty and the pain. Yeah, and in a weird way, this story reminded me of Cat Person because of exactly what you're saying. Something we didn't say in the discussion of Cat Person um, was my feeling that there are certain kinds of stories, like that one, where the third person is deployed more or less as the first person, but with someone that is a bit disassociated from themselves. They have some kind of double vision. And that's the way this story reads to me. It is a first person story told in the third person because Vlad mm -hmm. is a construction of Vlad. And so it, it becomes very apparent to me when I read it that we are stuck really deep in Vlad's psyche. You know what you said earlier about about outlines and feeling like Sarah was just an outline and that was okay with you. Mm. So I think that's where some of my uncertainty lied and where some of my my wishes gathered. Um, where <laughs> like some of my fairies. wishes where some of my wishes accumulated. Because uh, I kind of wished I, I, that, that while I see your point, like I see the desire to accept the outlines of the characters here. Mm -hmm. In part, I see that because the story is constructed, like it has taught you to accept these outlines. And it has taught you to accept them in part because Vlad is so consumed with his own internal conflict over whether or not to be a monster or to how to be a monster or should I eat this lady or not <laughs> eat this lady. He's so consumed with his own facade that the rest of the life has grayed out. It has become mm -hmm. like silhouettes and outlines. You know, the more that you try to hide from yourself, the more you lose sight of other people. And like, I grok it and I get it. And yeah, a part of me, without even adding detail, I, I wish that there had been more of an externalization of his conflict with the other characters. I wish mm -hmm. that there had been moments where Vlad had to wrestle with other people and that in that wrestling, they and he would have become real in a different way where even though they were outlines there was a sense of of menace not just within him but between him and other people like they could cause him harm right because there's a 
there's a little bit of a feeling I had that at the end, there's that awesome line where he, he says to her, how can we be dangerous again? It's so good. And when I finished it, I was like, this is, a, a, in a sense, the story, has, has, the, the story has chosen as its form a very genteel way of delivering this idea of a loss of danger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. there's that moment, that tiny scene where they're in the living room together and she says, you're doing it again. That thing where you don't move. And and I could, I could imagine another version where that scene opens up into something more dangerous from her. Mm-hmm. I, I would love... Because at the end of the story, right, she knows what he's up to. She's got her rifle aimed on him to make sure right. that he doesn't kill. I would love to have seen in that in that moment in the living room something that clued me in mm. to that promise to that danger you know that's true like that that could have been a way and, and another thing could have been for them to be doing something entirely different from what seemed like the plot of the story you know making peanut butter sandwiches or something yeah and there'd just be a spark of a of of a fight to be like they fight over something that they shouldn't be fighting about but for some reason they're fighting about it as um i a good a good storyteller told me once an argument should never be about what the argument is about right exactly because that is a way to add depth and detail to people like that's one of my favorite like i forget about it all the time and then as soon as i remember oh yeah i can just step over here to the side and talk about something entirely seemingly unrelated to what's going on Mm -hmm. and in doing that i'll discover more about these people they're not going to run away from me (laughs) right because Uh, because you come up with a reason why the attention has shifted and and how they would react or be in that situation and that is that is the depth for me though it's a bit mystical it's a bit magical in that even though these people are in my mind taking a moment and trying to look at other things they would be doing in their life that I might not think is relevant to the story feels like giving them space to breathe and live Mm -hmm. and trust that they and I will work this into the story somehow. And I often feel like I get such a gift between just throwing the characters off in a place I didn't think they would be and seeing what happens. Thanks for listening, readers. We have, as forever and always, failed to discuss all of the stories that exist in the universe or said even one half of 1% of all the things that could have been said about the stories that we did choose. So if you have recommendations or thoughts on these stories, you can hit us up on Twitter. We are at Storyological. Which is story. Like the word. Oh. Like the letter. And logical. Like Aristotle. You can follow Emma on Twitter. She is at E.G. Kosh. And you can follow Chris on Twitter. He's at Kuvols. You can find and like us on Facebook. We're at facebook.com slash storyological or... You can go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash that word I said before, storyological. You already spelled it. You know how it goes. <laughs> and if you'd subscribe at the $3 level, then you can have in your inbox every month a letter from Chris where he reviews everything in the world, one by one. <laughs> yes, as Gaiman would say, more or less. Um... And if you're not interested in supporting us on Patreon, that's cool. You can support us by listening, which clearly you're doing right now. Thank you very much. Or you can tell somebody about us on the Twitter with the faces, the the snaps. The actual, the actual oral communication. Yes, the actual oral communication. Next time you're on a Tinder date with somebody that you swiped at because they booked their face. 
<laughs> because they read a book once. Yeah, because they read a book once. Yes. <laughs> yes. The, the next time you're on a Tinder date with somebody, you swiped because they mentioned how they read a book once. Yeah, you can let them know about this podcast. Mm hmm. What else can they do? Uh, or you can ho head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review there. Uh, that helps us in their rankings and helps other people find us. And of course, you can find uh, us and all of our show notes and our gifts of appropriate and inappropriate nature and links to past episodes uh, and to interviews with people like Yukimi Ogawa or Amala Matar, or Carmen Maria Machado or Sam J. Miller, Adam Arlick Sachs or Joseph Allen Hill. Is that everyone? And many more <laughs> uh, at our home place on the interweb. Storylogical.com. Thanks for listening. Happy reading. OMG. Like, literally, like, so literally, much. Shut up. Can't it's even amazing. all, every, what? <laughs>